A warm welcome to First Move to all of you. So good to have you with us this hour. We want to begin today's show with just released economic data out in the U.S. New numbers show the American economy growing at 1.1 percent annualized rate in the first quarter. That is below the expectations of about 2 percent and the slowest pace of growth since last spring. The report shows consumer spending is still strong, but businesses are pulling back on spending as investors pour over the new data. U.S. futures, let's take a look here, still pointing to a higher open after Wednesday's mixed session. Tech in the lead after strong earnings from Facebook parent company Meta, Europe mostly higher as banking giant Joint Bank and Barclays post-market-friendly results. Higher close in Asia too. Investors looking ahead to tomorrow's highly important Japanese, uh, J- Japanese Central Bank policy statement, its first policy pronouncement under its new chairman. Also in Asia, Samsung shares finishing Thursday's session slightly higher as well. The South Korean tech giant promising a stronger second half after suffering a 95% first quarter profit drop due to the ongoing chip supply glut. So much to get through today. Let's begin with the latest on uh, the U.S. economy. The world's largest economy is growing at a much slower pace. U.S. GDP growth slowed to an annual rate of just 1.1% in the first quarter, missing expectations of 2%. Rahel Solomon uh, joins us live now. So it certainly represents a slowdown here, Rahel, that is for sure. But it still shows just how resilient the American consumer really is, despite all of the price increases they're experiencing. Well, Zane, I think that's the absolutely most interesting point of this report, right, that we're seeing a slowdown. And we can show you how this 1.1 annualized rate compares to the last few quarters and make no mistake about it. This is a slowdown. But to your point, Zane, it's where we're seeing the slowdown. Right. So we saw actually still positive contributions in terms of consumer spending, which I should point out powers about two thirds of the U.S. economy. So consumer spending is the backbone of U.S. GDP. And that was still a positive contribution. We saw exports increase. We saw federal government spending. Now, on the opposite side, where we saw really meaningful deceleration, it was things like a private inventory investment. You think about, for example, business investment, uh, business inventory investment, non-residential fixed income. Uh, that would include things like manufacturing plants, uh, equipment and software. And so it's interesting that we're seeing a pretty market slowdown in terms of businesses in terms of business spending investment. But in terms of the U.S. consumer, we are still seeing in spite of, as you pointed out, the higher interest rates, in spite of the high inflation, which is cooling, but still very high, consumers are still spending. And so that really helped on the upside. But businesses on the other side are really pulling back as they prepare for what could be potentially a recession here in the U.S. And speaking of businesses, let's talk about First Republic Bank. Uh, my, oh, my, what are they going through this week? Uh, stocks, their stock fell, falling about 50% on Tuesday, 30% again on Wednesday. Um, how long can this bank actually continue in this current format, Rahel? Mm. It's a great question, Zane. I think there are a few scenarios that look likely at this point. One scenario is that actually maybe it continues to coast along and its share price languishes, as one financial uh, portfolio manager told me yesterday. That is certainly a possibility because when you actually look under the hood of the report, which they were which they released earlier this week, uh, profitability is a challenge for the bank. And that's what you're seeing reflected with its stock price. But deposits have stabilized. Uh, Customers have remained with the bank, although they have minimized, they have uh, lowered how much deposits they have within the bank. So this is really a, a concern about profitability for the bank, the spread between what they borrow and what they can earn. That is shrinking. And so that's what you're seeing reflected uh, in the stock price. So they could languish here for quite some time. They could potentially uh, be 
put under the umbrella of a larger bank, which it has been before. It's been under Bank of America before. It's been under Merrill Lynch before. Uh, that is a potential perhaps another rescue package. There are so many scenarios being discussed right now. And it is a uh, it has a similar profile in many ways to SVB. So that is really spooking, clearly investors and spooking uh, as it had uh, depositors saying. Yeah, it's quite remarkable that it's managed to cling on so long. You think about what happened with SVB and Signature, they fell within days. Um, yeah. uh, this bank, First Republic, has Still managed to on. Still hang on <laughs> for over a month. All right, Rahel Sullivan, so good to see you, my friend. Thank you. you. All right, call it a mega quarter for Meta. Shares of Facebook's parent company up by more than 10% pre-market after beating profit estimates and raising guidance. China, a bright spot. Meta also touting progress in AI as well. Claire Duffy uh, joins us live now. So, Claire, Mark Zuckerberg actually dubbed 2023 the year of efficiency. Obviously, we had all of those layoffs, thousands of people laid off at Meta at the end of last year. Those numbers are actually reflected in this earnings report. Just walk us through that. That's right, Zane. It, what, what seems to be happening here is that this year of efficiency is really sort of getting underway, and that's starting to be reflected in these earnings. Meta did take about a $1 billion hit from this sort of restructuring process. And look, profits were still down by nearly a quarter year over year, although they beat expectations. And what shareholders really seem to be sort of tapping into here is that sales grew 3% in this first quarter of the year. It's the first time Meta sales have grown in nearly a year. And Meta's family of apps also posted 3.8 billion users, up 5 percent year over year. And so I think you're starting to see Meta sort of come into this recovery process. Uh, Meta also lowered its expectations for, for expenses for the full year. And it said it expects revenue to grow again in the current quarter. And so I think what, what the company is really sort of trying to express to shareholders is that while last year business was really struggling, it's starting to improve and it's starting to recover here. And let's talk about Meta's Reality Labs unit, because that's the sort of branch of the company that focuses on virtual reality for the metaverse. That segment of the business still posting huge losses. What did Mark Zuckerberg uh, say about that? It's so interesting, Zane, because, you know, Meta more than a year ago changed its name to focus on the metaverse to really reorient its business. And while it is still spending billions of dollars in this Reality Labs unit, the metaverse seems to really have taken sort of a back seat in terms of focus at this point. And Mark Zuckerberg is talking a lot more about AI as it's sort of chasing these other big tech companies that are really spending on AI right now. And so a few of the things that Meta talked about in terms of its AI efforts, it plans to introduce AI chat in Messenger and in WhatsApp. It plans to introduce AI visual creation tools in Facebook and Instagram and also its advertising business. But it is really interesting to sort of hear him now talk about the metaverse as this really sort of future effort for the company, while AI is the focus right now, despite the fact that they reoriented the whole company around that plan just, just over a year ago. The irony. All right, Claire Duffy, live for us there. Thank you so much. The battle between Disney and the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, only is growing fiercer by the second. DeSantis blasting a lawsuit served by the House of Mouse. The company is accusing the governor and his political allies of violating Disney's constitutional rights. DeSantis, though, has dismissed that. 
They had no accountability, no transparency, none of that. And, and that arrangement was not good uh, for the state of Florida. Uh, we did not think that that should continue. So we now have brought accountability. Every other Floridian has to have this, this type of, of oversight, all Florida businesses. So it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a little bit much uh, to, to be complaining about that. I don't think the suit has merit. I think it's political. People of Florida, they understood that this was an issue. Do, did you, do you want uh, one company to have their own fiefdom or do you want everyone to live under the same laws? CNN reporter Steve Conturno has been following this. So just talk to us a bit more about how this tip for tat started. It essentially started when Disney started speaking out about the so-called parental rights in education or the so-called uh, don't say gay bill. Just uh, walk us through how this all began. That's right, Zane. And that was 14 months ago. So this is a clash that has been going on for almost over a year. And we've really seen it now escalate to this point. Disney, a few weeks ago, uh, it, it uh, was uncovered that they had made a maneuver to block DeSantis from blowing up their special district and taking away their longstanding powers. In, in Central Florida, where Disney has its theme parks, it has, for the last 60 years, operated essentially its own government there. It runs the water, the utilities, uh, the streets, the sewers. Everything is sort of under their purview. And that is sort of the, the covenant that, that Disney and Florida came to 60 years ago when they first wanted to open this theme park here. Well, DeSantis and Retribution for Disney speaking out that against the Don't Say Gay law, they actually took away some of those powers and said, we're going to be in charge of this district. Well, Disney said, I don't think so. Let's take back some of those powers at the last minute. DeSantis found that out and then they nullified those agreements. So now here we are with Disney saying, well, the only recourse we have left now is to take this to court. And so a judge in the Northern District of Florida will now decide who is right here, Disney or DeSantis. And just pivoting uh, to the sort of more political aspect of all of this, DeSantis still hasn't technically announced that he's running for president, but he's been out there raising his international profile, sort of brandishing his foreign policy credentials. He's actually in Israel right now. Correct. He just got to Israel. He previously was in uh, South Korea and, and Tokyo. Uh, this is really his first chance as, as a likely presidential contender to sort of step out onto the international stage. He has been mostly known for domestic issues. He was a governor who was a pandemic contrarian. He kept Florida open uh, for uh, a much more uh, uh, people were able to move around without masks or vaccines, much more than in many other states. He also has been a, a, in the, at the forefront of these culture wars. You, the Don't Say Gay Bill is one example, but he's also been one of these governors who has been uh, making it harder for transgender children to get health care and, and a lot of those battles. So th this is the first chance he has to sort of flex his foreign, foreign policy credentials, but in a sign of just how much he is known for these, these, these cultural battles, even in Israel, one of the questions he was asked about was this lawsuit. So this is something that is following him around the globe, really, as he tries to make a name for himself and, and be known for something a little bit other than the fights that he's had back at home. All right, Steve Conterno, live for us there. Thank you so much. The situation in Sudan is getting worse by the hour. A race is on to evacuate foreign nationals while the current ceasefire, low tenuous, remains in effect until later today. In the meantime, millions are trapped in their homes. Hospitals are overwhelmed. Food, water, fuel, all of those in short supply. And we're getting reports of new clashes in Khartoum. 
and some of the surrounding areas. CNN's David McKenzie is following these developments from Johannesburg. So, David, I mean, on the political level, there's still no sign, really, that either side is truly ready for serious talks. But it's the humanitarian cost that is really heart-wrenching in all of this. It is heart-wrenching, and it's uh, very serious, both for Sudan, the people of Sudan, and for the wider region, Zain. And that uh, ceasefire that was due to expire later today, I mean, really, it's a ceasefire in name only, based on the eyewitness reports we're getting in and people I've been speaking to in Khartoum uh, who uh, really say that there's been fighting throughout that period of ceasefire, though some areas of the capital have been calmer. The impact of this conflict between the two warring generals is exceedingly difficult for particularly those hospitals and doctors that are still able to operate and they're struggling to save lives. A brave Sudanese doctor takes us inside a frontline hospital in Khartoum, filming over several days. Dr. Haweda Al-Hassan and her team are barely coping at Al-Banjadid Hospital. They talk about ceasefire, but there is no ceasefire. The wounded keep coming in, she narrates. The same staff have been here for 11 days. They're facing a deluge of civilian victims, many with multiple gunshot wounds, wiping away the blood because the casualties never stop. My son was wounded, says this man. I'd have come because many hospitals aren't working. I'm astonished how we're able to continue. We don't sleep. I wouldn't call what we do sleeping. I would call it fainting. We faint, then we wake up again. I'm surprised how we are managing. Dr. Haweda says everything is running out. They are giving smaller doses of medicine to ration their supply. We use the equipment and the instruments more than once, she says. We can't sterilize properly. There are just too many wounded. Soon we'll have no bandages, no medication, no anesthetic drugs and no oxygen. The situation is bad, with all the meaning of the word. Bad, and it will get worse. Unless help comes soon or the fighting stops. Sudan's doctors' union says that more than two-thirds of hospitals are shut in the capital. Eyewitnesses and doctors' groups say hospitals are being targeted with heavy weapons by both sides, which they deny. As foreign governments spirit their diplomats and nationals out of Sudan, Dr. Haweda says her conscience compels her to stay. I believe the number of casualties and wounded will increase after the foreigners are evacuated. God knows if we will be alive or dead. Sudanese blood is one blood, she told us. I beg you to silence the sound of the rifles. We spoke to uh, Dr. Hueda this morning, uh, Zane. She said that they've run out of oxygen now at that hospital. They're desperate to get supplies in. There's been uh, growing pressure, of course, for a diplomatic end to this uh, conflict. But so far, uh, efforts by the African Union, the regional body in East Africa, the U.S. and others all haven't really persuaded uh, those two sides to meet uh, and even just to stop fighting for more than a few hours, Zane. You know, the situation on the ground, as you point out in your piece, is, is nothing short of harrowing. Uh, Dave McKenzie, life was there. Thank you so much.
Right, Russia is pounding targets in southern Ukraine as speculation mounts over the timing of an expected Ukrainian counteroffensive. Nikolaev, the Ukrainian military, says that Russian missiles hit a residential building and houses, killing one person and injuring 23 others. Further east in Zaporizhia, the regional military says that Russia pounded targets with more than 80 attacks. Two people were killed there. Nick Robertson joins us live now from uh, northern Ukraine. So, Nick, just talk to us about these fresh attacks uh, in Mykolaiv, once again targeting civilians. Yeah, they are hitting civilians. They're hitting them uh, along... They appear to be hitting them in the areas where uh, Russia seems to fear that there could be the potential for an advance from the Ukrainians, at least... Uh, it seems that in the Zaporizhia area where those two people were killed, um, in the Mikolaev area that is not far from Kherson, uh, and it is and it is just across the river from Kherson where Russians say that they've been receiving some small attacks from the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians say they've been having some successes in striking just across the Dnipro River from Kherson. Um, but the Mikolaev strike two rather four S-300 uh, surface-to-air missiles uh, hitting at about 1 a.m. in the morning. As you say, one person killed, 23 injured, one of those injured, a child. Um, again, this does appear to be Russia potentially targeting those areas where it thinks Ukraine potentially could be building up forces for this uh, re-offensive operation that uh, Russia believes Ukraine is preparing. And that we've seen other indications, again, not far from Kherson, in the north of Crimea, which is uh, sort of potentially one of those areas the Russians could expect Ukrainian forces maybe to advance from the Kherson region across the Dnipro River, along the coastline towards north, north of Crimea. And in the north of Crimea, satellite images show that Russia appears to have pulled out uh, it's military hardware from a base. Uh, satellite images were showing that, that hardware, uh, artillery, tanks as late as January and February this year. But uh, a few weeks ago, satellite images showed that all that military hardware had gone. It's not clear why Russia has pulled that back, but it does seem to indicate that potentially they think that Ukraine could advance along the coastline there near the north of Crimea and perhaps threaten uh, that particular uh, storage facility. Why Russia chooses to strike Mikolaev, um, again, when, when Kherson was being contested, going back to November last year, Mikolaev was getting a lot of fire from the Russians. Um, are we seeing a sort of repeat of that? Not clear, but, but at the moment, uh, it, at the moment, those Russian strikes still very deadly. Thank you so much. All right, still to come here on First Move, Citroën uh, on a path to growth with a new model and a brand new CEO. We'll hear more about both up next. Plus. The day, the music. What a voice. What a voice. South Korea's. President offers Joe Biden a slice of American pie at the White House. There he was saying it. We'll have more on Mr. Yoon's state visit later on in the show.
Citroen has set its sights, or rather its headlamps, on Southeast Asia, India, and South America. The French automaker, which has been part of Stellantis since 2021, sees these regions as high-potential, fast-growing markets, and it's launching the new petrol-engined C3 Aircross SUV with those markets uh, in mind. It follows the C3 compact hatchback, which came out last year, and with a brand-new model comes a new brand CEO. His name is Thierry Koskas, and he joins me Hello. live from the C3 Aircross launch in New Delhi. Thierry, thank you so much for being with us. So congratulations, you're launching the C3 uh, Aircross uh, SUV today. Just walk us through how this model features in your portfolio as part of your international growth strategy. Well, as you well know, we are introducing a brand new lineup uh, based on a new uh, platform, both in India and in Latin America. Last year, we introduced the first model, the, the C3, a hatchback. Uh, this year, uh, all new C3 across uh, mid-size SUV in both uh, regions of the world. Uh, it's uh, the second step of our strategy. There will be a third model next year, and it's a whole strategy of expansion in these uh, new territories uh, for uh, the Citroën brand. Right, so these new territories include India, uh, various parts of Southeast Asia, South America. Just explain how the C3 is tailored to suit those markets. From what I understand, you actually got input from potential local customers. Absolutely. What we did is the, uh, uh, the platform and the cars have been uh, designed, engineered, uh, in, uh, and they are produced both in India and in Latin America. And it's so important for us to uh, fit the products to uh, the local needs. Uh, Indian needs are, uh, for example, very specific uh, in terms of uh, features of the cars. And that's why we have uh, engineering centers that have really uh, designed the car, listen to the customer, obviously, and designed the car specifically for these markets. And by the way, we are launching today uh, the two cars at the same time in both regions, but they are slightly different and tailor-made to each region. And just in terms of what these markets represent for Citroën, just, just explain to us what they represent, because obviously there's so much potential in these regions. They're obviously very fast-growing as well. There, there is a huge potential. Uh, the objective of uh, Citroën is that, uh, you know, it's a very much a European-based brand. Uh, we want to grow as quickly as possible to 30% of our sales outside of Europe. Uh, Latin America and India are uh, two big opportunities uh, for us. In Latin America, we have been present, particularly in Argentina, uh, now uh, in Brazil, so uh, it's a growth uh, strategy. India, it's completely new. We introduced the brand in uh, 2019. India will become very soon the third uh, car market in the world, probably very soon to 5 million cars. So it's a great opportunity for uh, Citroën because we are starting as a new brand and we think that we have very much specific things to uh, offer to this market, particularly in the DNA of Citroën, Comfort is one of the key values of the brand. This is so important for Indian customers. This is what we want to offer to the market. I mean, yeah, you have certainly your sights set high in terms of India. Obviously, there's so much potential there. Uh, you mentioned it's a new brand in India. March 2022, you sold just 52 units. Obviously, it's a brand new, uh, it's a brand, new brand for India. And 
By a year later, you sold over uh, 2,000. So obviously, there's very, very fast growth here. How do you sustain that rapid pace? Well, the way to uh, sustain the growth is, uh, first of all, to rely on the dealer network. We have today 30 dealers in India. Very soon, <clears throat> with the launch of uh, C3 Across, we will have 60. And by the end of uh, next year, we will have 100 dealers. And the strategy is one product, one new product every year, C3. We had also the electric version of C3, now C3 Across, and the third vehicle uh, next year. Uh, this is very important in Indian market to sustain always the novelty. There is always a big appetite mm -hmm. from Indian market to get new products, updates of the product, and so on. We want also to cover very well the territory. That's the growth strategy. One new product every year and uh, 30 more dealers every year. So the growth strategy is a new product every year. In terms of staving off the competition, because obviously even though um, you know India represents so much potential for you, actually these three markets do, there is competition in terms of other brand SUVs, be it from Hyundai or Kia. Just explain to us how Citroen plans to differentiate itself from those other brands. Well, first of all, uh, cars uh, made in India, produced in India, we have a very high rate of localization, more than 95%. But particularly, we think that we stand out in, uh, uh, in, the, in the market because we have unique features, uh, roominess, comfort. And if you take the all-new C3 R-Cross, one of the key features that no competitor has is the possibility to have a five-seater version and a seven-seater version. You will not find that in the competition. That's one example of things that uh, make us stand out compared to the competition. And that's why we think we have really something to say in uh, Indian market and also in Latin America. All right. Thierry Koska, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Welcome back to First Move. The opening bell sounding on Wall Street. And we've got a higher open across the board. Investors struggling off a weaker than expected U.S. GDP number. Tech in the lead after strong results from Meta, whose shares are currently up more than 14%. The next big earnings test comes after the closing bell today when Amazon reports profits. Meantime, First Republic Bank, as we discussed earlier in the show, is certainly under so much pressure uh, again certainly a uh, little changed rather falling some 30 percent wednesday and almost 50 percent on tuesday the deeply troubled bank is still working to steady its finances after suffering massive deposit outflows a lot is riding on whether larger banks or even the government might be willing to lend support if needed tensions continue to keep rising between taiwan and china but taipei is losing diplomatic support from latin america as beijing's influence in the region continues to grow. Rafael Romo has more. China has launched a diplomatic charm offensive with Latin America in recent months. In September, then-Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi met with his Argentine counterpart at the UN General Assembly. Two months later, he sat down with Mexico's Foreign Minister at the G20 Leaders Summit. And in January, President Xi himself delivered a video address at a Latin American and Caribbean forum. China's influence in the region has grown so much and so fast that Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen felt compelled to visit Guatemala and Belize a week after Honduras severed ties with Taipei, a move Taiwan called very regrettable 
as the Honduran foreign minister traveled to Beijing to establish formal diplomatic ties. Now only 13 countries in the world diplomatically recognize Taipei over Beijing, which considers Taiwan part of its territory, despite never having ruled it. Beijing refuses to maintain diplomatic ties with any country that recognizes Taiwan, among them Guatemala and Belize, and in South America, Paraguay. In its holding presidential elections this coming Sunday, and the leading opposition candidate has signaled he may rethink his country's ties with Taiwan if he wins. Efraín Alegre says national interests and foreign policy goals would influence his decision, adding that he's not happy with the current relationship. It uh, has worked for decades to maintain Taiwan's presence. An expert on relations between China and Latin America says Beijing has been filling the void left by the United States across the region. Absent the U.S., what happens? China has been, has been, China's participation in the region has been growing for the last two, three decades, and this is the, its latest manifestation. It's the U.S. pulling back and China um, um, gaining ground. The only Latin American leader who seems to remain a staunch ally of Taiwan is the Guatemalan president. Alejandro Yamatei gave Tsai the red carpet treatment when she arrived last month, saying Guatemala recognizes Taiwan as an independent nation and the only and true China. Tsai and her host toured a hospital built thanks to a $22 million donation from Taiwan. Her government also donated $1.5 million to equip Guatemala City's airport with air conditioning. On Monday, he returned the favor by starting a three-day visit to Taipei, where he called for a free, sovereign and independent Taiwan. Before departing, the Guatemalan president said he hoped Taiwan would now buy as much sugar and coffee from his country as it used to get from Honduras, hoping the unwavering loyalty Guatemala has shown will pay off in the long term. Rafael Romo, CNN Atlanta. It pays to go green. That's the message from a report by the Asian Development Bank, which says that for developing Asia, the net zero transition can bring benefits up to five times as great as the cost of change, not just by heading off massive economic losses driven by uh, global warming, but also via better public health that comes with uh, cleaner air. The bank says that on the cost side, changing around our economies could shave 1% a year off GDP in the Asian region. Joining us live now is Albert Park, Chief Economist at the Asian Development Bank. Albert, thank you so much for being with us. Let's talk a bit more about this new report that the bank has just released on climate change. Just walk us through more broadly what the global transition to net zero will mean for Asian economies. Well, the first point to make, of course, is that Asia is more vulnerable to climate change than any region of the world you have a lot of populations living in coastal uh, regions. You have a, a higher frequency of natural disasters, and we've seen quite a lot of them uh, in the last couple of years alone. And so because those damages are so high, the benefits of really aggressively attacking the climate change challenge are also very high. And I think as we learn more and more about the negative uh, damages of climate change, this is becoming more and more obvious that the region will really benefit 
from being more aggressive even than the current net zero commitments to tackle climate change as early as possible. But the fact is that no region in the world operates as an island. And the fact that you have two of the world's biggest polluters, the United States and China, not exactly on the best of terms right now. How much does that make things a bit more difficult when it comes to uh, combating climate change for the region? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the concerns is a lot of individual countries have made their own uh, pledges towards net zero or divine contributions uh, to the climate change uh, challenge. But uh, there hasn't been enough discussion about working together and coming up with common standards, uh, common goals, and even trying to open up coordination across countries so that the countries that can address climate change most efficiently can bear a higher burden. And that can only be achieved by some sort of carbon pricing mechanism where countries are seeing a similar price signal for what the costs and benefits are of climate uh, change um, mitigation. Talk to us about, just from a macroeconomic viewpoint, some of the major headwinds you see for the region, be it, for example, trade tensions between the U.S. and China, obviously China still healing, or the region rather, still healing from the pandemic and China's uh, zeroed COVID policy. Obviously, there are inflationary pressures on top of that. I mean, how do you ensure that Asian economies remain resilient, as resilient as possible in the face of all of those headwinds? Well, earlier this month, we released our updated forecast for growth in the region. And we are actually predicting pretty resilient growth of 4.8% this year and 4.8% next year in developing Asia compared to 4.2% last year. Now, that's not quite as high as the even higher rates of growth that were being posted by the region before the pandemic. But it's pretty resilient cover uh, recovery. At the same time, you're right. There there are major global headwinds. A lot of the risks are still related to the Western uh, central banks' uh, efforts to control inflation. Uh, there's still, of course, concern that uh, the Fed could become hawkish if they really try to bring inflation down to low target levels like 2%. And there's also been recent banking turmoil we've seen most recently with another likely failed bank in the United States, which puts pressure on the overall financial system because it makes credit conditions much tighter. And this could have negative effects as well on the region. As you and many others have noticed in the past, uh, where China goes, so goes the region. When you think about the fact that it's been a few months since China loosened its very strict zero COVID policy, what sort of material effect do you think that will have on the rest of Asia, especially developing Asia? Well, we've upgraded our growth forecast for China uh, for this year from previously 4.3% to now a projection of 5%. Uh, That reflects the uh, very sharp uh, shift away from the zero COVID policy. Um, And this has important spillovers to other countries in the region because China is becoming an increasingly important part of supply chain relationships. Chinese tourists also have not been traveling to other regions in Asia We estimate that about 18% of tourists uh, that go to Asian countries before the pandemic were coming from China. And so the Chinese tourists coming back on the scene will provide a boost to the region, but especially the economies that rely more on tourism, like Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, the Philippines, for example. All right. Albert Park, chief economist of the Asian Development Bank. Thank you so much for being with us. All right. Still to come here on First Move. A homecoming for Yaya the Panda. Why her return to China signals 
uh, a deepening rift with the United States. China is widening its already sweeping counter-espionage law, a move that's worrying foreign businesses. Experts say that any organization or person could now be considered a suspect. The amendment approved by China's top legislative body on Wednesday is in line with an increasing emphasis on national security under President Xi Jinping. Anna Koren joins us live now from Hong Kong. So, Anna, what does this mean just in terms of legal risks and also uncertainty for journalists, for example, for foreign companies, but even academics? Yeah, there is so much that is unknown, which obviously is very concerning. But this counter-espionage law, Zane, has been updated. It's the first time since 2014. It's banning the transfer of any information related to national security and, and broadening the definition of spying. Uh, it's a move that analysts warn could create uh, further legal risks for foreign companies, as you mentioned, journalists, academics, researchers, you know, people who are visiting or, or working in China. Uh, this revised law will come into effect on the 1st of July and it has expanded the, the definition of espionage from covering state secrets and intelligence to, quote, any documents, data, material or items related to national security and interests. Now, cyber attacks against the state and key infrastructure are also now considered uh, espionage. Uh, however, the law is vague and it does not define what falls under China's national security or interests. And, and here lies the concern. Uh, China's President Xi Jinping has made national security a key priority for his administration. And analysts believe the revised law is evidence of that as suspicion and tensions with the US and its allies grow. And it also comes as China is reopening to the world after three years of self-imposed COVID isolation. Some analysts say it's, it's feeling rather vulnerable. But there are concerns about the implementation of the law, and, and that really has been compounded by a series of arrests of foreign nationals on espionage charges. Uh, most recently, an executive, a Japanese drug maker, Astellas Pharma, who was detained in Beijing last month. And Zane, I think it's also important to mention that last month, uh, Chinese authorities closed the Beijing office of Mintz Group, uh, an American firm, and detained five local staff. Uh, while US consultancy Bain and Company said that staff at their Shanghai office today were questioned uh, by police. Now, authorities, they've refused to offer any details about the crackdown on either company, uh, but certainly analysts believe the move will further spook foreign businesses operating in China. Zane. And a current life for us there. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. The giant panda is back home in China after spending 20 years, most of her life to date, actually, at a zoo in the United States. Chinese state media says that she landed in Shanghai earlier today, the Memphis Zoo in the U.S. returned her as its loan agreement with China expired. But as Celine Wang reports, Yaya has become a symbol of deteriorating relations between the U.S. and China. Once a symbol of Beijing's goodwill, now the center of angry debate in China. This panda in Memphis, Tennessee, has become the latest victim in worsening U.S.-China tensions. Yaya arrived in America with her playmate Lola two decades ago as an emblem of growing bilateral friendship. 
But recent videos showing the once fluffy panda now looking skinny with scraggly fur has sparked outrage in China. Many Chinese people and some animal advocates accusing the zoo of mistreatment. Videos on Chinese social media claiming the pandas are being abused quickly went viral against the backdrop of growing anti-American sentiment. The rumors often fanned by state propaganda. And meanwhile, Chinese social media users are praising these viral videos of this panda in Russia, Wu Yi, claiming videos of the active and playful panda prove Russia is taking excellent care of the Chinese bear. State TV saying the pandas are helping the Russia-China relationship. Chinese and American scientists launched a joint investigation concluding that Yaya has a genetic fur and skin condition that does not impact her quality of life and has received excellent care. But that message is not getting through. Outside the panda exhibit at the Beijing Zoo, I asked people if they've heard of Yaya the panda. This man says, yes, she's abused in America. An 11-year-old boy tells me, I heard the U.S. is treating the panda poorly. This man says, isn't Russia taking good care of pandas? Pandas are happy over there, not like in the U.S. And this man with his granddaughter tells me, Pandas in Russia are very happy. Why? Russians and Chinese are friends. At least Russia is not sanctioning China. Yaya will soon settle in this Beijing Zoo. Now, China has long used its pandas as a diplomatic tool. Currently, its pandas are on loan to about 20 countries. The United States has not received one since Yaya and Lola 20 years ago. Now, these pandas are normally loaned on these 10-year leases, and they cost a million dollars annually. The Memphis Zoo had already planned to send Yaya and Lola back to Beijing this spring because their lease is expiring. But Lola died of heart disease two months ago at the age of 24. The average lifespan for pandas is usually under 30 years. Yet that didn't stop rampant speculation and led to an explosion of accusations about Yaya's treatment too, accelerating calls to bring Yaya back to China. The message even featured on billboards from New York City to major cities across China. In 1972, during U.S. President Richard Nixon's historic trip to China, his wife visited pandas in Beijing. On behalf of the people of the United States, I am pleased to be here and accept the precious gift. Months later, China sent a pair of pandas to the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Now, decades later, this panda's return from the U.S. to China, symbolic not of growing friendship, but growing animosity between two global superpowers. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. I can't remember if I tried when I read about his willow bride. Something touched me deep inside the day the music died. Follow that, Mr. Biden. Uh, South Korea President Yoon Suk-yeol performs at the White House during his official state dinner last night, as you heard, showing off his vocal range with a slice of American pie. After this standing ovation, President Biden presented President Yoon with a signed guitar for the songwriter Don McLean. It was a lighter moment during uh, a very serious visit, which is being closely followed by Paula Hancock's uh, in Seoul. So, of course, this was 
an eventful visit. I mean, everything from American, the Americans rather promising uh, a much greater demonstration of military might in the Indo-Pacific to sort of deter North Korea on top of that to South Korea promising not to develop their own nuclear weapons. But I have to ask you about that really sort of touching moment of President Yoon uh, singing American Pie. What a charming moment. You know what? Karaoke or Norabang, as it's known over here, is massive in South Korea. And you can see the passion for it goes right to the top. Now, it's interesting. He had a standing ovation for that in the White House. We'll see what kind of response he gets from Congress uh, in about an hour or so when he's going to be addressing Congress. His message will be about the 70-year alliance between the US and South Korea. And, of course, what we heard on Wednesday, this this new uh, agreement between the US and South Korea... Uh, the fact that the U.S. is uh, is promising more, that they are strengthening, as they say, the extended deterrence to try and deter North Korea. Uh, and specifically, what was uh, really being headlined, especially uh, over here, is the fact that there will be a U.S. nuclear submarine deployed into Korean waters. Uh, and according to a presidential office uh, official, that could be within a few weeks now, there hasn't been a reaction from North Korea uh, at this point. This is all obviously directed towards Pyongyang, but we have had a reaction uh, from China. The US actually warned China about this Washington declaration ahead of time, saying it's all preventative measures against North Korea's missile threats. There's nothing to be concerned about. But that's not the way that Beijing saw it. They have opposed, they said, the deployment of this nuclear submarine, saying, quote, the actions of the US reeks of cold Cold War mentality. Uh, so clearly not everybody in the region is happy with this. President Yoon is likely to be happy with the reassurance uh, that he has had from Washington. Whether or not it's enough to placate those in this country who were calling for South Korea to have its own nuclear weapons programme, it's unlikely. Those calls are still strong. There is a majority of people here who believe South Korea should have its own nuclear weapons programme. But what President Yoon has, uh, has agreed is that South Korea won't if the US can protect them more. Zane. All right, Paula Hancock's live for us there. Thank you so much. And that is it for the show. I'm Zane Ash. I'll be back in a couple of hours with One World. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.